Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Finos Open Source and Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Grizz Griswold of Finos. And in this episode of the podcast, we hear from Denise Cooper from everywhere in open source on debunking common fears about open source. More to come, but let's cue the music. Hope all of you are doing well. I'm fresh back from vacation from Harry Potter world. I'm still bad at the accent, which is not a good thing because when I was in high school, I did an entire play in a British accent. But obviously my skills have not been sharpened over the past a lot of years. Anyway, as I am getting back into everything, um, I have been lining up a whole bunch of interviews uh, that should be coming up uh, in the next week, I believe. Um, a lot of them are with Open Source Strategy Forum speakers, not only looking at the talks that they have coming up at Open Source Strategy Forum and also the members meetings, um, but we'll be going into some depth with them uh, too, depending on the topic. I know right now that we have an interview for FTC3, we have an interview for open source readiness, and we have an interview for InnerSource. Um, so with that, uh, I was thinking until those are ready, I wanted to kind of set the stage for open source strategy forum and open source and financial services in the first place. And um, in doing that, one of the best places I thought it would start was with Denise Cooper's talk about debunking common fears about open source uh, that she did for us a little while ago. And then Denise and uh, her business partner, Claire Dillon, have gone a long way in helping us form the inner source SIG uh, that is part of the Finnis Foundation now. Um, they do a lot of this work within their organization, Inner Source Commons who is also an associate member of Finos as well, period, there. So let me give you a little background on Denise and uh, what she's going to be talking about because, again, it's very relevant within uh, financial services and really any uh, regulated industries that are using open source. So I've known Denise for a very long time. Um, she's been uh, speaking what seems like forever on the open source speaking circuit. I met her when I was working on, I believe all things open or maybe even before that on another open source conference that I'm not allowed to say the name anymore. So I know her now as president of InnerSource Commons, but uh, when I read her bio, you'll see uh, that she has been in this industry for a long time. Uh, Ms. Denise Cooper has been the head of open source software at PayPal. Since February 2014, she served as inaugural chairperson for the Node.js Foundation from June 2015 to 2017. She previously served as CTO of Wikimedia Foundation, as chief open source evangelist for Sun, and as senior director of open source strategies for Intel. 
she concentrates on creating healthy open source communities and has served on the boards of the Drupal Association, the Open Source Initiative, the Open Hardware Association, and has advised Mozilla and the Apache Software Foundation. Uh, she also runs a successful open source consultancy, uh, which counts Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, SETI Foundation, uh, Harris Corporation, and Nementa as clients. Uh, she's been known to knit through meetings, and I believe that she also likes to play the... I'm probably going to get it wrong. It's either ukulele or dulcimer, too. I've, I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen a bunch of them hanging up uh, behind her in some of our meetings. So now um, Denise's uh, talk about debunking common fears about open source um, is how can a regulated industry business get ready for open source? So that's really a multi-layered question because of some special requirements created by those regulations. The process of developing open source readiness through an internal inner source practice has been the focus of uh, fintech for most of the past decade, thanks to success stories from the likes of Lloyds Bank. So then how does the fact that fintech companies are subject to strict regulation play into uh, undertaking such transformation? Uh, Finnis' James McLeod was tweeting with Denise Cooper, about a podcast they'd recorded uh, earlier uh, when a follower asked that seemingly simple question and out of the resulting conversation becomes uh, what you're hearing here today. Uh, we'll be looking at such issues as PCI compliance, GDPR compliance, distributed ledger systems such as blockchain, and new regulations surrounding transfer pricing and exploring strategies to mitigate risk and what lessons can be learned uh, from innovative new companies. I'll include Denise's slides within the show notes, but you probably won't need them. Um, although they are pretty cool as far as the pictures that she puts in. Uh, Denise is entertaining. Love listening to her. Love talking to her. And I hope you enjoy this. So take it away, James and Denise. So good afternoon, everybody. This is James McLeod, the Director of Community at Finos. Um, welcome to the Finos Virtual Meetup, where I am joined by Denise Cooper, the VP of Special um, Initiatives at Nearform. And just to give you a little bit of background um, to Denise, uh, Denise has a 30 plus years um, technology career, where 20 of those plus were in open source, and where she was um, the first open source officer and also established the first corporate open source office. Um, she's formerly CTO of the Wikimedia uh, Foundation um, and is classed as a high priestess of inner source. Um, and she's also helped 100 plus companies through open, their open source journey through her consultancy, Denise Works. Now, Denise joins us today to take us through debunking common fears about open source. And with that, I'd like to pass the mic over to Denise. Um, welcome to today's session. Thank you so much, James, and, and welcome, everybody. Um, so I'm here to talk about fear of open source and some of the common fears that we hear over and over again when we talk to new industries that are just getting started in the open source area. So first, I wanted to give you my Twitter handle just in case you were going to tweet this thing. Um, because it wasn't on the intro slide that I was given by the Finos guys. And um, here we go. So first of all, 
I'd like you to know that you're afraid of open source mostly because somebody tried really hard to make you afraid of open source. 20 years ago, there was a concerted effort by a handful of companies whose business models were directly in the crosshairs of the open source world. You have to remember that open source happened around the same time as Napster and people were looking at the violent changes happening in the online music industry. Hello? Hi. Okay, Denise. Don't worry, I'm keeping an eye on people's um, mute and, and so okay. please keep on going. Thank you. The, the online music, music industry was scaring the pants off of the traditional um, software industry. And so notably Microsoft, but not only Microsoft, were doing everything they could to spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt about open source. And it was a surprisingly concerted effort. They actually hired uh, attorneys to write fake white papers about open source licensing to create some doubt there. They did a lot of lobbying within the markets where they were, you know, most influential to keep it out of those places. It was a whole thing. And a lot of the questions that we get asked today are still the same ones that they seeded way back then. So um, now that Microsoft is a friend of open source, it's pretty entertaining, actually. Um, I was asked by Microsoft a couple of months ago to give a talk about the history of Microsoft's journey in open source, and which I researched. I actually talked to a lot of people, you know, went over a lot of old, uh, spent some time in the Wayback Machine, you know, to, to look at exactly what happened when. And what I discovered was that um, they are pretty much unaware of that roadmap that they were on. Two days after my talk, uh, Brad Smith, who was the head attorney at Microsoft when I worked there and is still the head attorney, admitted publicly that they had gotten it wrong about open source. So that's pretty great to hear. Um, there were a couple of other things that happened, though. The SCO case, which was some people at the Santa Cruz operations trying to shake some money out of IBM for um, supposedly using their code without permission because some of their code they said had made it into uh, Linux. And there were some documents claiming that that was a gift they gave to the Linux community. Um, IBM, to their credit, stayed the course on that long lawsuit and expensive lawsuit to make sure that the SCO threat was completely dead, that the Linux kernel's provenance was completely explored and that everybody agreed that Linux was not ripping anybody off. Um, another big fear moment that this, this community had was recently when the Heartbleed thing happened. And what that exposed was that there still are some key pieces of the internet tooling, which are mostly open source pieces that are under surveilled meaning that they didn't have much community built around the piece that broke, which meant that there wasn't anybody looking to see if, if problems had entered the picture. So the security model was, was not as solid as it needed to be, but it gained a lot of very quick support from the money behind open source to make sure that never, ever, ever, ever happens again. And a lot of companies will tell you about their contributions to making sure that that doesn't happen again. Okay, on to the fears. This is the number one fear that I hear from financial institutions and also curiously from municipalities, that it's too hard to find support because people who sub out their 
their um, development often want a throat to choke if something goes wrong. But interestingly enough, the probably most famous open source based company in the world, Red Hat, their whole business model was offering premium support on their versions of, of um, the open source software that people came to uh, be dependent on. So their, their software was always open. You could always compile it yourself. Well, there was a minute there where that changed, but the open source community helped them back to the right road very quickly. And you know they sold for hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to IBM based partly on their install base, but also partly on their mastery of that business model. And because that business model has been so successful, it's quite easy now to buy top quality support for your open source project. It's a little bit trickier if you're doing your own modifications, which is why we always advocate to send your modifications back upstream so that they can be supported in the main product because it just makes it easier for you. So hopefully we'll dispel this first myth. It's quite possible to find proper support now. Then there's, then there's concern that open source code are somehow the unwashed masses. This is a picture from Burning Man where they really literally are the unwashed masses. And there are a lot of programmers that go to Burning Man. But open source programmers are the best programmers in the world. They are paid more money because they're willing to work in the clear. The fact that they're willing to allow their software to be inspected just means that they're more careful going into it. Nobody wants to be publicly embarrassed. They feel confident that they're at the place where they can defend the choices they've made in their code. And, you know, there are so many companies that wouldn't exist without the work of these excellent developers at this point. Calling them the unwashed masses is a little unfair, I think. Okay. Next, we have the question of security. And this was a huge issue at the beginning of open source. Microsoft spent a lot of time trying to undermine open source based alone on security. They kept saying, how can it be secure if everybody can see the code? And they were betting that people would fall for that because of the prevalent notion during World War II that secrets needed to be kept. But the truth is security through obscurity has been shown to be a complete crock a long time ago. Um, but just to be clear about this, when I was starting out in open source, I was working with a gentleman named Whitfield Diffie. Um, and Whit Diffie is the co-inventor of Diffie-Hellman encryption. He was the chief security officer at Sun. And, you know, Diffie-Hellman encryption is what makes it possible to do commerce on the web. So I asked him what he thought about open versus closed security. And he thought about it a long time before he answered me. What he said was, I see no statistical proof that either system is better, but we can look at the qualitative data that shows us how much faster the response to a known vulnerability is in the open source world. It's measured in hours, not weeks or months like it is in the proprietary side. So that tends to have me believe that open source is inherently more secure. And then as a, as a little kicker to that, he said, you know, we do know that most malicious acts of code are perpetrated by disgruntled employees who have access to proprietary code that's not surveilled very carefully. So you can think about that for a minute. 
generally it's believed now that the way that open source security is handled is the gold standard for security. And it is everywhere. It is in mission critical, you know, or, or uh, life critical um, uses every day. And you better believe that those people double check, they look carefully before they incorporate new software, but they're generally not having to fix those problems. All right. Then there's the concern that there's, there's sort of not defined rational decision-making going on. And this is sort of like the unwashed masses fear. This is another one that was seeded a long time ago. But the truth is these days, all of the major projects have very defined decision-making process. The, the, a lot of press was given to the Apache Software Foundation deciding that you could assume goodwill you could assume that you're going to be fine and be ready to roll back your changes if somebody objects, right? That's sort, of their, that's sort of their motto so that they can keep moving forward. But what's interesting about that is they have a very defined process and they actually vote on all of the important things. If it's a major change, if it's the entry of a new person into a level of responsibility, if it's uh, accepting a new project into the organization, uh, considering a project top level, considering a project ready for release, all of these things require actual votes, not Rochambeau votes, but a real voting. And all of those decisions are both documented and archived so that you can go look at them again. So in many ways, open source is far better in, the, in terms of how decisions are made, how they're documented, whether or not you can um, inspect them. And there's very little chaos about it. Okay, now we have the difficult problem of how do I make money if I don't own the intellectual property? Okay, this might be a little bit of a new idea to you guys. It's, it's been talked about in the open source world for a long time. The patent system, as we know it, was designed for physical, mechanical inventions. And as such, the pace of change was much slower the expertise that was required to make a good determination about the uniqueness of an idea was also a lower bar. Today's patent and trademark office in the US, which is the largest in the world, cannot hire enough qualified people to do real um, careful analysis of the uniqueness of what's being submitted. So a lot more patents are being granted without deep um, uh, observation, deep, you know, deep analysis. And as a result, in patent court, something like a third of patents are actually being upheld. The other two thirds are being struck down because they're bogus. And that's especially happening around business method patents because the other trend is there are very few foundational patents being filed now. It's mostly business method patents. So the difference there, a foundational patent is a unique invention. It's not just a change in the way that you do things. And a business method patent is, is a change in the way you do things. So Amazon owns a patent for something called one-click. The idea that a company could invent a single click gets you the answer that you need is ridiculous, right? Um, there are a lot of other patents like that that are ridiculous. And when that patent was filed, Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Publishing wrote a blog saying this is ridiculous. And Jeff Bezos answered him, it's a long time ago, Jeff used to do his own mail, 
And he said, um, dude, I have to do this because my investors want me to stockpile value. And this is the way to do that. But I agree with you that it's broken. So let's go to Washington. So they went to Washington together. And Tim, who's a friend of mine, came back from that meeting really depressed. In a week, they were in 50 lawmaker offices. This was during the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration. They were in 50 different offices. They saw two working computers on lawmakers' offices. And they thought, oh my God, the problem here is that everybody in power is too old to get what we're talking about. So nothing's going to change. Tim was like, it's never going to change. And then Obama got elected. And there was a sea change in Washington. People from Silicon Valley moved into uh, D.C. to help out as fast as they could. Uh, Obama hired the first CTO the country had ever had. Think about that. It is a huge percentage of our GDP in America, and yet there had never been a technical person sitting in the White House. But now there was. However, the patent system has, has continued to be difficult to change because they literally can't hire the expertise. Anybody who's good enough to be a patent examiner is not going to work for civil service wages. They're off working for the big tech companies. So it's a broken system. This is not how to get ROI out of your software anymore. It's a, it's a serious long shot unless you're doing foundational patents and nobody's doing those. In Europe, business method patents aren't even acceptable yet. So clinging to your IP is a bad idea. What makes more sense is building your business. I mean, go ahead and make IP, patent it if you must, but don't hesitate to open source your code if it gives you a different advantage. And some of those advantages might include you get more customers out of it. The last two really big sales of open source companies have been that the inflated values of those companies came out of their install base or their customer base or their expertise in a specific open source method. So though that's where your ROI lives now. So, you know, don't be fooled by the old fashioned ways. All right. Then there's people whose proprietary partners don't like open source and they're afraid that if they do it, they're gonna get in trouble. This is another Microsoft thing that happened. They, they had the entire subcontinent of India terrified of using open source because they were gonna pull their funding from the educational system if that happened. This is, you know, up to about 15 years ago. And then Satya Nadell shows up and all of a sudden it's cool to do open source in India. And they dove right in. Now they've got laws on the books about public code being, you know, stuff that's paid for with taxpayer dollars has to be open source in India now. Um, it's, they're working on curricula to teach it in schools. I mean, it's, they've made a big leap. This uh, picture, by the way, is from the week in, in uh, 2000, when IBM decided that they were going to make public the fact that they were making a big bet on Linux. And they stenciled this design all over the sidewalks around this conference they were talking at in San Francisco. But they had neglected to get a proper permit for this piece of street art, and they got fined a lot of money for doing it. So people have bled real money for their love of open source, and big companies have been doing it a long time. At this point, it's table stakes. And if the company you're working with doesn't like it, you probably need to dump them. All right. Then there's concern, again, this is more of the unwashed masses thing about how uncertain ship dates and future shipping is. 
you can't plan around it. The future is, is uncertain, which is why you have a climate change um, uh, beach shack there. So here's the truth about this one. Most projects, if anything, ship too often for you. So we have for many years now been advocating a pattern where they create a very stable repository that only once a year, maybe they move, you know, they do, they port fixes to it, but pretty much it just stays the same for a longer period of time. They put all of the new development into a dev release, which means that your engineers can be testing the new features and integrating to them before the big stable release comes out for the next version, which should make your conversions a little bit better. And you won't feel so pressured to um, do the latest thing without knowing that you like it. And most of the big projects are working that way now. So um, I think that this is actually kind of a moot point again. Now you're going to get a very quick licensing um, primer because licensing is confusing. However, you have the advantage of being with Finos, which means that you're, if you release your code under you know, their auspices, you will be using the Apache software license version too, which is a great license. But let's go through it quickly. On the right-hand side, you have proprietary. It's just there because it's the anchor against which we measure everything else. On the left, the far left, you have the inheritance or viral licenses. They, they don't like that name viral very much. Um, they're also called the copyleft licenses because they use copyright in an interesting way to make sure that the code is always going to be available. And the famous one is the GPL or GNU public license. And then there's some others we'll talk about again in a second. Now, if you look next to proprietary, just to the left of proprietary, you see permissive. That's the center, the most easy to digest licenses. I will tell you from personal experience, the most likely to drive deep adoption are the permissive licenses, MIT, BSD, and Apache. These I call these copy center licenses, both because they're in the center between pr proprietary and copyleft, but also because you can just go down to the copy center and make as many copies as you want, because the licenses literally say, just use our software. We're not going to sue you. Um, the Apache is the gold standard because it does have language about both trademark and um, IP treatment. So that's why everybody has gotten around those two. The other two are very brief licenses, but they are all sort of the same conceptually. And then the Mozilla license is a hybrid license, meaning that it acts like a permissive license until some condition is broken and it changes to being a viral or inheritance license. Um, so it's sort of the best of both worlds, or at least it looked that way to a lot of companies, but it turns out to be a bad idea to use that license for everyday use because it creates smaller pools of code, less reuse. All of these licenses, except for the proprietary and the Afero, um, trigger on distribution. And since most code is now presented to consumers behind a SaaS wall, as software as a service wall, so it's being performed over a browser or over an app, um, you're not actually shipping open source code like the Linux um, operating system if you're using it in your shop. It's not being shipped to the customer. So you're not actually triggering any of the requirements that you open your code along with them. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of idea. Remember, again, none of this matters if you're going with Finos. They've already chosen the best license. All right. And then the last one is that community requires resources. And that more and more people tell me they just don't have time to build that. 
but that is so misguided. The community is in fact the whole value almost of open source. I mean, yes, it is cheaper to acquire, but the way that you pay for it is by building community because you know about the tragedy of the commons where if you overgraze the commons, the commons dies, right? Feeding back into the system is how you pay for the use of that software. And you do that by building community around the stuff that you open source or by participating in community when you donate contributions upstream. This is very key. And anybody who misses this point is gonna be disappointed in their open source engagements. All right, so after listening to all of that, if you plan to open source, you might as well make it effective. So I'm gonna give you a very quick version of how to do that. I decided a, few, a little while ago to help one of my employees by giving them a quick set of questions they could ask to sort through proposed open source projects to see whether they were gonna be a good idea or not before we wasted time on them. So I'm gonna give them to you now. Number one, does anybody care aside from you and your mom? This is a hard concept to grasp if you think that you are gonna be like Apple where you do these events with the big reveal, but the big reveal is really costly in terms of your ability to actually get the work done. It's in my opinion, an unwieldy and bad idea in like 99.99% of cases. And so it's perfectly reasonable to send an engineer to a meetup like the ones that James runs, have them pitch the idea of this being open source and not as a done deal, but as a look how clever we are, we built this thing. Would it be helpful to you guys if we open source this? Come and see me later at the end of the show. And if nobody turns up, that should tell you something. Don't bother, okay? There are hundreds of thousands of projects that have been open source that nobody cares about. You don't want your brand associated with one of them. Secondly, are you still using it? People tend to want to dump code that they don't want to support anymore or that they have an engineer who worked on it and got loved it, but now they need him to do something else. So they, they promise him that they'll open source it, but it, he's going to want to work on that instead of the new thing, probably, unless he's actually leaving the company and you want him to go ahead and start a company with that stuff that he worked on for you that you're not using. But in general, if you're not using whatever it is, you don't want to open source it. Okay, next, are you still improving it? Assuming that somebody cares, you found somebody and you're still using it, are you still improving it or do you think it's perfect now? If you think it's perfect, it's a bad candidate for open source because you're not gonna be able to build community if there aren't things left to do. People think they have to polish the code to a fine gloss before they release it, but that is the wrong impetus. What you wanna do is get in the habit of writing good code but also being honest within your code. So it's okay to tag a given part of the code, this needs to be replaced. Or another part, this is a bit of a hack, but we were trying to redo it. Or this is an area that you could help. This is all cool because it leaves people points of integration. So um, don't, don't over polish. And then the last one, after you have submitted the thing as an open source project, made your splash, can there only be one tree, please? Can you kill the version that you keep inside the firewall that you work on? If you keep working on that inside the firewall, instead of working as a regular community member out in the project, you are gonna be tempted to throw stuff over the wall once you've got it polished up and that will also disincent your community horribly. There've been some very famous, very heavily funded 
open source projects by corporations that died that way, notably the Darwin project that Apple did when they switched to um, the mock kernel. They got the best possible person, they set it up, they gave it a lot of airspace, but they could not break themselves of the habit of building stuff inside the firewall and then catapulting it over the wall. Don't do it. Okay. And thank you, Denise. Like I said, I've been listening to Denise talk for well over a decade now, and um, I really love what she has to bring to each presentation, um, not only in her experience, but also in, you know, <laughs> her presentation too. It's always great. So I hope you're able to join us in person because I believe that she will be on one of the panels about Intersource for OSSF London. But as usual, I want to thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, this podcast could not be as successful as number 11 out of the top 40 as of this week um, in open source podcasts. Thank you for listening. And thank you if you've rated us five stars. It always helps us. It, um, you'd be surprised how the algorithms... Well, no, most of you are in technology. <laughs> you wouldn't be surprised how the algorithms work, um, but it does help us a lot if you do rate us five stars and uh, make some comments uh, about how we're doing and what we can do to improve too. Other than uh, subscribing to this podcast, if you would uh, join us on finos.org, join us on LinkedIn and Twitter, on our Slack channels, um, sign up for one of our newsletters, either uh, the weekly This Week at Finos, um, plus, we have a newsletter that goes out uh, every two weeks, bi-weekly. Yeah, every two weeks. Join us at the Open Source Strategy Forum in London on October 5th. And if your company that you work for is one of the Finos members, uh, I'll put a link to our members in the show notes. Um, please join us for free for the Open Source Strategy Forum in London on October 5th, but also for the members meeting, which is the day before on October 4th. Uh, we will also have Open Source Strategy Forum in New York and a members meeting on the 9th and 10th. Uh, so if you're uh, in the States, join us there. Thank you again for your time. And as always, this is Grizz Griswold of Finos. Good day, good night, wherever you are. Mm -hmm.